let's start out this way. Here's a statement for you. When toes get stepped on, people lash out. I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, growing up, I had a friend. His name was Paul. And uh, Paul was a lot of fun to be around, had a great sense of humor. But he could also be a difficult person to be around because he also had a famously bad temper. Multiple occasions, I watched Paul just blow his top and literally punch somebody. I had it happen to me a few times. And um, in high school, there was times that I would ride to school with Paul and his older sister, Sarah. And one frosty morning, I had walked over to their house early in the morning to catch a ride to school. And we went out to the car, and Sarah and I got in her uh, Volkswagen bug, and um, Paul was going to scrape the windows. And so he's outside with the ice scraper, and up to his usual funny man business, he starts like etching out a cartoon on the window with the ice scraper rather than just get it done, you know. And we're always running late and in a hurry, and so Sarah's in there like, come on, hurry up. And he's out there thinking it's funny to be, you know, making his little drawing on the window. Well, she decides that she's going to go ahead and pretend to leave him. And so she puts the car in reverse and starts to back up. At which point, Paul's temper famously flared in a most dramatic way. He almost immediately just exploded in this scream. And you're just like, whoa. Now, what we didn't know was that Paul's 13-sized foot was parked right behind the front tire of the car. So when she backed up, hence the reason for the scream, she immediately put on the brake and stopped. And he screamed and he started pounding on the hood of the car with his fist. And she's in there like, What's your problem? You know, I'm just teasing until he finally, finally actually used words and communicated, you're on my foot. And of course, she quickly got off of his foot and he got in the car and now he was truly angry and his good humor was absolutely ruined. And I don't think it helped any that all the way on that drive to school, Sarah and I could really only see it from the funny side. <laughs> and, and one of us would smile, and the other one would snort trying to hold in the laughter, and then he would explode again. <laughs> you know, you guys shouldn't do this. But it was just so funny. To, I can, to this day, picture looking through the window and seeing him just beating on this car. And I, I say all of that to say that when toes get stepped on, there will be a backlash. But... I'm not just talking about physical, literal toes. We're talking also about the figurative toes that we all have. And, and when those toes get stepped on, we tend to lash out. We're going to see a passage of scripture this morning where the figurative toes get stepped on and the lashing out is much more severe than Paul beating on the hood of the car. So I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Luke 4, 14. We're just going to start this passage and we'll take it in small um, 
verse-sized bites here as we go along. So Luke 4, 14 and 15 says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So there's where we start. Let's put up this first slide. It's a map that you can follow along with for the next few minutes. Let's set the context a bit more as our story begins, because it tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee, and I think it's a natural question to ask, well, where had he gone? Where did he go? So if you were to uh, even look back in your Bible just up the page, you'd probably see the story of the temptation of Jesus that Luke records. If we back up, we know that Jesus left Galilee to go and be baptized by John the Baptist. And he had gone down south, I don't have a laser pointer here, but near the Dead Sea by Jericho, um, at Bethany, where John was baptizing. And so that's where Jesus had gone. And then he had, had spent some time there. And you know that after his baptism, he was immediately sent where? By the Spirit. Into the desert, the wilderness, to be tempted by Satan. Now, while that's happening and Jesus is being tempted, the religious leaders in Jerusalem had gotten together and they sent a delegation down to John the Baptist to say, what are you going to say about yourself? Talk to us about yourself here. Are you the Christ? And John the Baptist says, no. And the Gospel of John records those accounts. It says in John that the very next day after after John the Baptist testified he's not the Christ, Jesus returns and, and lands on the scene there. And that's the day when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the day that some of John the Baptist's disciples said, Whoa, we got to find out about this Jesus. And they followed him. And remember, he said, Come and see. And then remember that he spent a few days with him. Where did he take them? Do you remember? He took him to a wedding in Cana, way back up north, basically at the top of this map to the left of the Sea of Galilee. He took them up there on this pretty short trip. They were at the wedding in Cana. And then it tells us that after the wedding in Cana, Jesus, with his mother and his brothers, went down to Capernaum and spent a few days there before traveling back to Jerusalem because it was almost Passover. And it's at that Passover in Jerusalem that Jesus does a few uh, things that we're very uh, familiar with. That's the first cleansing of the temple where Jesus made a whip and went in and drove out the money changers and um, created an incredible stir. And of course, the next day they come to him, by what authority are you doing this? What sign will you give us to prove your authority? And Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And of course, they couldn't fathom that. They think he's talking the physical temple. He's talking about his body. He's pointing to a sign that he will give in his resurrection. From uh, that time, that's also the time when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, John chapter 3. But then it tells us that Jesus um, left Jerusalem after the feast. Um, oh, by the way, this comes up in Luke, so I might as well mention it. It also tells us in John that Jesus performed a number of miraculous signs while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, and it doesn't even tell us what they were, but that's important to the story. So Jesus left there, and he goes um, from Jerusalem back out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with his disciples and was baptizing. That's John chapter 3. Now, 
two factors eventually caused Jesus to leave this southern part of Judea down near Jerusalem, the Jordan River, and go back north to Galilee. One of the factors is we are told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that John the Baptist was put in prison. He was preaching and he confronted uh, Herod Agrippa about his personal life. Herod didn't like that, retaliated, and put John in prison. The second factor that Jesus um, motivated Jesus to go back north to Galilee was that the Pharisees in Jerusalem caught on and were keenly aware of the fact that Jesus was now gathering a larger following, baptizing more followers than was John the Baptist. And, and Jesus, um, it doesn't tell us that in, in John's gospel, but Jesus then specifically goes back to Galilee. It doesn't tell us um, the exact reason why, but in other places it tells us that he basically is waiting until the time is right in his ministry to do this. So Jesus leaves to go back to Galilee. That's when John chapter 4 happens, when he had to go through Samaria. And on the way through Samaria, he met the woman at the well, that famous story in John chapter 4. He's on his way back to Galilee. He stays a couple more days in Samaria at that town, and a bunch of people believe. And from there, he finishes the journey, and he lands back in Galilee. Back in Galilee, Jesus immediately goes on a preaching tour around Galilee. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that Jesus does this, and he's preaching in the various towns and villages all around Galilee, and it tells us that the Galileans welcomed him. A couple of reasons for that. One specific reason that it tells us is that they had seen the miraculous signs he had done while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, because they had been there too. Remember, all the Jews were required to go to Jerusalem for those three main feasts, Passover being one of them. So Jesus was welcomed as they, uh, in Galilee in that way. But also on that preaching tour, Jesus goes back to Cana one more time. And while he's in Cana, an official from the town of Capernaum comes to him with his sick son who's about to die, and Jesus heals that boy from a distance. That was also done in Cana. Well, then Jesus goes just a few miles from Cana back to his hometown in Nazareth. And that's where we're going to pick up the story back in Luke chapter 4. So all of that brings this together. And we remember that I started out by saying when toes get stepped on, there will be a backlash. Keep that in your mind. Pick up the story with me now in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So it says, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. We're going to stop right there for this moment. Now, up to this time, the return of Jesus to Galilee has been very positive. People welcomed him, and even here in his hometown, uh, the people are praising the words that are coming out of his mouth. They're excited. Uh, this uh, sermon is going 
good so far, if you can say it that way. Here he is. He, he opens to that text. Now, this is a great text. If you're a Jew living under Roman oppression, this is a messianic text. It feels very nationalistic. It's the kind of text a, a Jewish preacher could really stir up a crowd with if you wanted to. Okay, So they're, they're in favor of the text. This is good. And John records that there's, there's no um, objection, apparently, to Jesus even saying, hey, this is fulfilled in your hearing. People would be like, how so? But we're interested. Like, yes, this would be great. We would love to see these messianic promises fulfilled. But that right there is the end of the positive mood. Something is going to happen right now that dramatically shifts the, the mood here from a, a welcome home mood to a throw him off the cliff mood. Whoa. Drastic shift about to take place. So let's see what happens. Look at the final sentence of Luke 4.22. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Now, stop and say, how are we to take that question? Isn't this Joseph's son? If we give it the kindest possible read, it's skeptical. Uh, as if, you know, we're really surprised by his humble beginnings. That's the kindest possible read. But there's evidence in the Gospels that perhaps we may not want to take that or should not take that statement so charitably. Mark 6.3 tells us that when Jesus comes back to Nazareth again and the people take offense at him, they say, isn't this the carpenter? And do you notice that they use his trade instead of his name? Isn't this the carpenter? As if, what does a lowly, working-class carpenter without any education have business telling us wax and eloquent about religious matters, right? There's a, a dig in that against him. There's even evidence proving that some of the references to Jesus as Joseph's son are way more sinister in their um, intent than that. In Mark 6.3, the people say he's Mary's son, as if, and we don't know who his father is. Or in John 8.41, the religious leaders say to Jesus, we are not illegitimate children. So, we don't know exactly in Luke 4.22, what did the people mean when they said, isn't this Joseph's son? How far did they intend that dig to go? But judging by Jesus' next statement, he didn't take it as a positive comment either. He wasn't like, oh, thank you for the compliment. Yes, I'm Joseph's son. Okay, here's how Jesus responded. Look at 4.23 now. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. What's going on with this statement? Jesus is predicting that the hometown crowd is going to require him to prove himself in some way. They, they're going to quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Do you get that statement? If you're talking to a doctor, you'd be like, okay, you say you can make people better. How's your health doing? If you're talking to a teacher, 
You'd say, you say you can teach people. What, what did your kids score on the SAT? If you're talking to an investor, you say you can help people make money. How many millions are you worth? Prove yourself to us, in other words. Uh, in the case of Jesus, they've heard of his miracles, and they're going to say, show us the power. Prove yourself. Come on. Where's the lightning? Where's the thunder? Snap your fingers. Do something. Amaze us. Show us, Jesus. Prove yourself. But Jesus knows that the clamor for a sign does not produce genuine faith in people. I could take you to multiple places where Jesus addresses this issue, but the point is that signs were given. And Jesus over and over again says, like, basically, I did do signs. How many more do you think you need? The point is, they're never enough for an unbelieving heart. In fact, later in Luke, in the parable of rich, the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And of course, he will do that. He will rise from the dead. And he said, they are still not going to believe. And they didn't. But here in Luke 4, Jesus isn't finished yet. So pick it up with me in verse 24. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Stop there. <laughs> Jesus predicts that the hometown crowd is going to reject him as Israel did to Elijah and Elisha all those years ago. It was the pattern then. It's going to be the pattern now. Israel rejects her prophets. Nothing new. Think for a moment of the miracles that Elijah and Elisha performed. Elijah stands up on Mount Carmel, the famous showdown with the prophets of Baal, and fire literally comes down from heaven and devours the offering the people all go, oh, God is God. And for this one day, they turn against the prophets of Baal and kill a bunch. And you'd say, all right, revival is starting in Israel. And guess what? That little flickering flame of revival was snuffed out in one day by Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah's running for his life. No, it didn't turn the tide. It didn't change Israel, even that dramatic miracle. Nor did any of those other miracles of Elijah and Elisha, the famous cleansing of a leper, Naaman, or the um, raising of a boy from the dead, or Elisha's famous you know, spy knowledge that God gave him of the movements of the king of Aram that he could continually tell the king of Israel and protect. None of that convinced Israel. All those wonderful, miraculous signs but it's even worse than that. Jesus points out that Elijah and Elisha were both sent to Gentiles. And the Gentiles, seeing those things, would believe. They would have faith. And you know what? When Jesus said that, you'd say, them's fighting words. Now, you all sitting right here don't seem to be particularly affected by that 
you haven't gotten angry with me for what I've read. It doesn't seem to have offended you, but he sure stepped on their toes and the backlash was severe. Look at what happens now. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So much for the popularity of the hometown hero. Welcome home. Throw him off the cliff. Kill him. In fact, in the very next verse, Luke mentions that after this event, Jesus changed addresses. He went and lived in Capernaum. Matthew, in his gospel, makes it even more explicit, linking the rejection at Nazareth with the move to Capernaum. And there's also fulfilled prophecy in all of that. But there's a point uh, to that. Now, what's the deal in this text? Um, go ahead and give me my next slide. Um, there we go. Here's, here's what I say the point of this text is going to lead us to conclude. Jesus didn't back down in his hometown. He allowed his identity and his mission to offend, and he, I said it this way, let the chips fall where they may. I'm not going to be beholden to how these people are going to respond. However they respond, here's the truth. We've said it already all along. Give me one more arrow. When toes get stepped on, people lash out. Now, it's a dramatic event, obviously, but it leads me to ask the question, why is this in the Bible? Why is this important? What application does it have to us, if at all? And I suppose you could say, well, on one level, it seems simple enough. This is the first major rejection of Jesus that's recorded, and it's going not to be the last. It's, it's going to be the first in a whole string of rejections. Jesus is never going to back down on the truth. And so the rejections continue. And in that sense, it just forms part of the narrative that's going to lead all the way to the climax, the final rejection, and they're going to crucify him. But on another level, it's really not quite so simple because this story seems to reveal something about the character of Jesus and, and something about the methods of Jesus and the reactions that this kind of living is going to elicit. Jesus didn't back down in his hometown. He allowed his identity and his mission to offend. And he let the chips fall where they may. And if we are supposed to be transformed as people into the image of Jesus, and this is part of his character, and if we as people are supposed to join Jesus on his mission... And this is a piece of how he lived that out. Then we're going to have to grapple with this text and say, so how do I emulate that? What do I do with that in terms of my life and my character, in terms of joining Jesus in his mission? Jesus seemed to roll up his sleeves and wade right into the controversy in this text, didn't he? I mean, he didn't have to say that, did he? They could have gone, Look, Joseph's son. And he could have been like, let me tell you another parable. But he didn't. He waded right in and he said the thing that just 
mashed on their toes. And he did it on purpose. What about Jesus being full of grace and truth from Tuesday's chapel? John's gospel starts out, he's full of grace and truth. Uh, is he being gracious here? We, we're pretty sure he's truthful. Uh, nobody seems to doubt that part, but everybody's a little unsure. It, it, can you call him gracious right now? In fact, look back at verse 22 with me for a second. This is very interesting. In verse 22, it says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Yes, the same Greek word. They attribute right there, he is being very gracious. All the things he said are so gracious. And then we go, oh, wait, but what about that next thing he said? Is that still gracious? And we start to wonder about that, especially in our age of um, pushing this version of tolerance that's really not tolerance at all, but a version of, of tolerance that says you, you can't disagree with anybody. I think there's a really good lesson here for us, and let me try to say it this way. Grace does not equal compromise. Being gracious does not mean you have to compromise. Grace does not equal being tolerant in the way that our world is trying to define tolerance to mean that you can't disagree with anyone. Grace does not equal being spineless. Being gracious doesn't mean we have to tippy-toe around all the issues or shy away from a confrontation that must be had. Jesus had a lot of hard things that he had to say. Uh, think of the way he blasted the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23. I'll just give you one verse out of that sermon. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. How gracious. Uh, those are harsh words. They're truth, but they're harsh. So can this Jesus who says that kind of stuff be said to be full of grace and truth, both? I say absolutely yes. Let me give you a quick illustration of how I could say that. Think of it this way. Um, imagine a policeman who is in his character, thoroughly gracious. Everyone knows him as a gracious man in his family, in his church. All, everybody says that he's a gracious man. Can that policeman go in and break up a group of thugs beating up a guy and jump in there and be bold, be loud, be harsh and say, you sit down and get over here and you're under arrest and, and all of that stuff and, and walk away from that and would people still call him a gracious man? I hope so. Only a very, very great fool would walk away from that instance and say, oh, that compromised this man's gracious character. He needed to be what he was in that moment, but his character is full of grace. Is that not like Jesus? Absolutely full of grace in his character. But he could say the hard thing if he needed to. And he did. Grace and truth can coexist very happily. And right now, I think that that concept is under attack in our world. 
Do you not feel that? There's a lot of people that want to say to you, if you're going to speak truth, then you're not being nice. You're not being tolerant. You're not being gracious. You shouldn't say things like that. That makes people feel bad. Am I wrong? We need to come back and recognize that grace and truth can and do coexist. We can be very gracious people, and yet we can speak truth, even when it's hard for people to hear. Check our clock here. Okay, I need to wrap this up in the next couple of minutes, so let me do this. Um, I'm going to quickly suggest to you four types of situations where our resolve to stand for truth is going to be tested, and especially in the sort of hometown situations. I was going to actually break you into groups and have you discuss this, and I'm going to have to skip that for sake of time. But on the PowerPoint, let's put up these four things. When status quo of established practice or relationship is in play, i.e. Jesus and Nazareth, you going back to your home church potentially, you with your family and extended family, there is a pressure that often comes to compromise truth because of that status quo. Hey, don't rock the boat. Everybody's happy here. Our family is a happy family. You don't come in here and say those kind of things. You don't make a stand for truth when this person's lifestyle is in question because we are a happy family. You don't do that. That's one of those situations. Let's put up the next one. Oh, they're all up. Okay. Allegiance to God's kingdom trumps allegiance to blood family. Um, and I give you a couple examples from Jesus. Jesus in the temple at age 12. His parents did not understand that. Who are my mother and brothers? He says later, God's family is going to trump blood family. And believe me, when that happens in your life, people don't understand that. Um, Andrew and I have felt it in, in different ways in our family. I remember uh, over Christmas gift giving, we have felt some pressure because we were making decisions with our money to give money into ministry causes, which meant we weren't giving as much money into Christmas gifts. But some of the family was used to having more money into Christmas gifts and all of a sudden, you find right there a rub. And that's just one tiny little example. Number three, kingdom living trumps religious conformity. Think of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners or Jesus breaking Sabbath traditions. Uh, maybe for you in your church, if you were to stand in your church and raise your hands in worship, you're going to get like the, whoa, dirty look if you did that. Um, maybe for you, it's how you dress on Sunday mornings. and There's traditions that are expected religious conformity. And if you break those, look out. There's backlash because you stepped on toes. Or maybe it's God's truth confronting cultural idolatry. Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. And I'm telling you, anywhere that you step on cultural idolatry, be it Hollywood or the sports culture, or and on and on we can name it. You step on cultural idolatry, and there will be a backlash. And you'll find out real quick if the people in your church have cultural idolatries, because you start talking about those, and they'll backlash at you too. If it's in us, we step on those toes, there will be a backlash. So what's my point in all of this? Why am I preaching this sermon uh, this year in chapel, I'm going to have six sermons, 
And each one of them is going to look at one of a multitude of um, bold moves that Jesus makes. Something he did that, that was a bold thing that he did. And what I want us to see is that um, in our own life, as we follow Jesus as disciples and as we are disciple makers, there are some bold moves that you may be called to make as well. Some things that you need to do to step out. And in this particular one, I'll say it this way, bold move number one is to allow the identity and mission of Jesus to offend if they must. This is a place of commitment for all of you. That's why I'm putting it first. It's kind of the heart check moment. Like, are you really in with Jesus or are you going to get wishy-washy as soon as somebody thinks it's unpopular to say something that's true? As soon as it's unpopular to say Jesus is the only way, John 14, 6, um, that's not a popular thing to say in our world today. Check the coexist bumper stickers, right? It's not. So are you ready to say, if the identity and mission of Jesus offend, so be it. If it steps on the toes and there's a backlash, I'm willing to let the chips fall where they may. I stand with Jesus. That's my challenge to you. It's a hard challenge, but I pray it's a challenge you'll take. So let me pray for you and we'll be done. Our Father, uh, you've called us to following Jesus because he's true. He is the only way. He is life. There is salvation found in no one else. You've called us to worship you because you're the only true God. And there is a standard of holiness and what's right and what's wrong, and it all flows from who you are. And Lord, as, as we follow you, help us to be unashamed, even if that takes us to our hometown in a place where it's in our church or our family or some other place where it's unpopular maybe, to say this is who Jesus is and this is what it means to follow him. So Lord, would you give us by your spirit great boldness and courage and yes, fill us with grace and truth that everybody who looks at our character will always say we are gracious, gracious people, but that we are unafraid to say what is right. And so we ask that you'd help us to hold that tension well and to be a faithful witness for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.